Some time ago, my friend Mike called me and said, Steve, I have a message for you. You have to make a podcast. It's very important. Do it now. And I said, okay, I will. Can you provide me with extra time to do that during my busy schedule? He said he couldn't do that. But then I managed to free up some time. So here's my podcast, Audio Chimera. This is episode number seven, The Agnes Flood of 1972. I think one of the reasons I am so attuned to the weather, besides the fact that my sinuses can predict shifts in the barometric pressure as well as any meteorologist can, is because I lived through some pretty intense weather-related phenomena when I was a kid. I've already done a podcast about the drought of 1966 that happened when I was nine years old, so let me now tell you about the Agnes Flood of 1972. During this time, before cable TV and the notion that you could have 500 channels with nothing on, we had four basic broadcast channels we could get on our tube TVs. York had WSBA 43, a CBS affiliate, and we could also pull in WGAL 8 from Lancaster, as well as WTPA 27, ABC, and WITF 33, the public TV station, from Harrisburg. And if we shook the magic eight ball just right and the conditions were favorable, we might even get WHP 21 from Harrisburg, another CBS affiliate, and so a bit redundant as we had 43 in our backyards. Note that in this lineup, only channels 8 and 43 came in clearly, and the rest, subject to snow and blizzard conditions on our screen, were sometimes harder to watch. And then the rains came a few days before my 15th birthday. It poured and poured, and I stayed inside. I was most dismayed by being unable to watch one of my favorite shows in WITF. Public TV pioneered the spread of crazy British shows. I recall watching Mighty Python's Flying Circus on Thursday nights, memorizing the sketches immediately, and reciting them, with all appropriate dialects and inflections, for my high school friends the next day, who were confused by the whole thing. They assumed I had gone insane, since no such thing could ever be seen on educational public television. And the person who first told me about Monty Python, Ted, who said, Crazy show, you should watch it, and who served as the inspiration for the character Ted in my play Dog Assassin, is now no longer with us. The night in question, I was trying to watch Marty Feldman's Comedy Machine, with its excellent opening animation by Terry Gilliam, also of Python. Of course, due to the weather, the reception from Harrisburg reflected the torrential winds and rain happening outside. I gave up trying to watch, and after reading for a bit, went to bed. Of course, having always been a night person, I slept late the next morning, but was awakened by voices in the basement. I couldn't make out anything in particular, but the tone sounded alarmed. Then I heard my mother ascend the steps, and she opened my bedroom door, greeting me with the words, Steve, do you want to get up and help bail out the basement? At the time, we lived in an apartment building at 349 Lindbergh Avenue. Don't look for it. It was torn down years ago but I often revisit it in my dreams. We had the basement and first floor, and an elderly woman named Clara Landis was on the second and third floors. Clara was a talker, and if you merely said hi, she would talk your ear off about the days of yesteryear. She also wore very heavy shoes, and when she went out to walk to the newsstand to get her daily paper, she would come downstairs practically running, making it sound like thunder in the acoustically echoey stairway. 
When she returned, slightly exhausted and already reading her paper on the way up the steps, she would clop, clop, clop up the stairs like a tired horse. Of course, one of the worst things would be if she cooked cabbage. That smell would permeate the house for hours. I thought I knew what it must have been like after a trench battle in World War I when she was finished with her meal preparation. It's hard to forget Clara for a number of reasons, and I have many stories about her. I also still have some almost antique books and a secretary that she gave me after she broke a hip and couldn't return to her apartment. That federal period reproduction desk has been to California, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and then back to Pennsylvania with me. Anyway, down to the basement. Formerly, it had had a coal furnace, and the right-hand window in the front of the house would open, and then you would take the screen off to send the coal into the stall. I seem to recall that there was a metal pipe that stretched from the furnace to the coal, but I also remember my aunt using a small metal shovel to feed the fire. Eventually, it was replaced with a gas furnace, and only the coal dust was left. However, during Hurricane Agnes, the rain seeped in enough to wash much of that coal dust away. Eventually... In the meantime, the higher part of the basement had about four to five inches of water almost covering the bottom step. The lower part, around the furnace with its now-extinguished pilot light, had about ten inches of water. I quickly dressed and, barefoot, walked down to the basement. Grabbing a plastic bucket and opening the cold delivery window, I began bailing water out through it. This continued for hours, though it felt, and probably accurately, that I wasn't really making a dent. My cousin stopped by and suggested that maybe whatever water I was bailing out was probably coming right back in. In my youthful optimism, I suggested that it was better if it was out of the basement even for a little while. Eventually, a plumber my aunt had called stopped in to assess the situation. He fished around in the front corner of the basement and discovered a lid on a pipe. When he removed the lid, water immediately began to gush downward and outward. This was a direct route to the sewers, and we were unaware of that until this moment. In future years, when we would have a sewer backup and water would flow out of a larger hole in the floor, depositing feces around it, I would always head right for that small pipe. Slowly, the water drained out of the basement, and I stayed down for a while, listening to the radio for reports on the weather and occasionally sweeping the remaining water toward the pipe. I heard about the various other problems with flooding in York and surrounding areas, including the flooding of the Susquehanna River, and even more locally, the Cadoras Creek, formerly the inky, stinky Cadoras, but later repaired by the Army Corps of Engineers so it would not flood again. All in all, it seemed like we had been spared the worst of the problems. I felt the same way in 1989 when the Loma Prieta earthquake hit. That was just slightly north of where I would be working that following summer in Santa Cruz. Measuring either 6.9 or 7.1, depending on your source, I felt the quake for only 15 seconds. My wife, near Sacramento in her car, thought she might need to get a tune-up as her car started running a little rough while stopped at a red light. But down the road? Death, destruction, and a frightening sight every time we would be on the BART train and pass the point where the interstate highway had collapsed on itself. Sometimes, you know, we are at the mercy of Mother Nature. Maybe we should be kinder to her. Anything you want to hear more about from this podcast? I can elaborate. Just send your request to stephenshrum at musefire.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-C-H-R-U-M at musefire, M-U-S-O-F-Y-R.com. Or leave a message at 724-835-4074, and I'll see what I can do. 
I receive no cash for products I mention, but please feel free to throw money at me to advertise here. For more information on my works, check out my website, musifier.com. For written works, search for me on Smashwords as Stephen Schramm or Musifier, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. This is Stephen Schramm. Thanks for listening to Audio Chimera. <laughs>